Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Pleasure to have Abby Joseph Cohen with us as our first guest this morning, longtime president of the Global Markets Institute at Goldman Sachs. She's now an advisory director there, senior investment portfolio strategist at Goldman Sachs. Uh, Abby, let me start by asking you sort of what it will mean in your estimation to have somebody with uh, not an academic background, not a PhD in economics, but a markets background, somebody who spent a decade plus at the Carlyle Group doing private equity uh, in the chair at the Fed, if that's who we get named uh, this afternoon. Uh, good morning. Um, clearly, um, everyone is now expecting that Jerome Powell will be named. And as you point out, he is not an economist. Um, and so I think much of the answer to your question depends upon the rest of the makeup of the board. Um, this is an FOMC, which has empty places at the table. And I think that the president um, will likely take advantage of this opportunity to fill not just the chairmanship, but also some of these other spots. I would say, however, the following. We are clearly at an important point of structural change in the U.S. economy. I think this helps account for the weakness that we've seen in terms of slow growth in employment. It accounts for some of the weakness that we're seeing in CapEx and so on. And when you have big structural changes in the economy as we shift increasingly from manufacturing to service, I would feel a little bit more comfortable um, if we had an economist either in that seat or if he is surrounded by other economists to whom he listens, assuming it is, in fact, uh, Jerome Powell who selected. The message that we're getting is this is a, a pick that's going to give us continuity. Uh, he's somebody who has voted with or gotten behind the, the current Fed chair, uh, Janet Yellen. In light of that, does that give you any more comfort with regard to what you're saying there, that we're going to have somebody who at least knows what path we're on at this point? Uh, yes, it does. Um, if you take a look at the way uh, Governor Powell has voted on the FOMC, clearly there has been consensus uh, that uh, Janet Yellen has built, and uh, he has participated in that. Also, his public statements, I think, have been very supportive, uh, by and large, of this gradualistic approach to a very slow tightening of monetary policy. And so from that standpoint, uh, one can mm. expect continuity. The question, I think, then becomes... Who will sit in those other seats that need to be filled? And will some right. of those people perhaps not be part of this consensus? Abby, thank you so much for joining us so early in the morning on this historic day. I should point out, folks, that Abby Joseph Cohen would be on anyone's short list for governor, vice chairman, or frankly chair <laughs> uh, as well, with the, cro- the tapestry of her experience over the years, not only at Goldman Sachs, but at the Fed, which gets me, Abby, to how a non-PhD economist sits in that office, you go in the building and you go to the right, and he's in the office of the chairman. How will he relate day-to-day with the Abby Joseph Cohens of the Fed, the hundreds of Ph.D. economists grinding out the grinding work? How will he do that? Tom, that's a wonderful question, and the answers that we have thus far seem to be that he will work well. Um, I have not spoken. I agree with that. Um, but I have heard from people who are, in fact, doing that hard work at the Fed, those highly qualified people who don't always get the forecast right, but they've been pretty close, and they've, their analysis right. 
of what's happening uh, is very good. There appears to be a good relationship right now, not just with Jerome Powell, but with the other members of the board as well. And I certainly hope that that yeah. will continue. What's the one book Jay Powell has to read now? Does he have to go back and read Mackey of the 19th century? Does he need to read Bernanke or Anna Schwartz on the Depression? Does he need to read Clarita Gertler on DSG Dynamics from 1994? What's the thing he needs? What's Abby Joseph Cohen saying, Jay Powell, read this and read it now? What is it? I wish I had a simple answer for you. Clearly, we were fortunate that Ben Bernanke, an expert on the Great Depression, was in place during the financial crisis. Janet Yellen, who I am personally disappointed will not be asked to continue, is an expert on labor markets, something that is in desperate need, that expertise right now. I think what Jerome Powell will need is information and knowledge and understanding about what happens when there are big structural changes in an economy. And uh, perhaps that book hasn't been written yet, but if we're looking for something way back in history, um, I would be looking um, at something, I hate to say it, like Schumpeter, um, which oh. I, may not, I may not agree with in terms of his policy prescriptions, but he does talk about what happens when right. there are major upheavals in an economy. Brilliant. The other, the other thing we need to keep in mind is that monetary policy is just one oar on this boat. Okay. And this the is, other is fiscal policy. The fiscal, we, we'll get to in a minute. I'm going to mm-hmm. put out, Abby, on social, the Thomas McCraw one volume on Schumpeter, which was my book of the year a million years ago. David Gura, it is, that's brilliant that Abby Joseph Cohen just brought up uh, the giant Schumpeter. And we do creative destruction every day here on Netflix. We do. <laughs> we, we do, and that's just the coffee. <laughs> let, let me ask you about the, the role of or the import of the Fed uh, at this point. What role is it playing uh, in, in the U.S. economy, in the global economy? What, what kind of Fed here is, is Jay Powell, uh, again, if he's picked, going to inherit? Uh, The Fed was absolutely essential. It was the main player for such a long time as we tried to emerge from the financial crisis. And right now, I think what the Fed needs to do, and some of the other central banks will be behind us in terms of time, um, will be to gradually remove some of that extra stimulus that has been applied, either through interest rate policy or through the use of the balance sheet. And I think a steady-as-you-go policy is important. We also have to keep in mind that it's time for fiscal policy to step up. And it's not just a question of the big Mm -hmm. numbers. How much is the government spending? What is the size of the deficit? But what are we spending the money on? My work would suggest that one of the things that has led to this disappointingly slow growth in the economy, even before the financial crisis, is inadequate long-term investment. And the long-term investment is not just CapEx. It's R&D, which has shrunk from 4.5% of GDP down to 2.5%, and also, critically, our investment in our people through education and our investment in our communities through infrastructure. Um, We have seen the deterioration of so much of our physical plant, that really has to be addressed. Okay, I don't care, Abby. I got one question, and it's the only one that matters. I know you're on the advisory committee to Cornell University, a small school in upstate New York, but I need to ask you, within your advisory capacity to Major League Baseball, can you get World Series games to start earlier at night? Can you actually make that happen? 
Well, you see, the problem, Tom, is that the games this, this series were so good, everybody wanted to stay up and watch. And, and I think that those of us on the East Coast have to be more thoughtful of those people on the oh, West Coast. Oh, stop. Very very, that was, that, she could be a Fed chair <laughs> over that. Abby Joseph Korn, thank you for ripping up your schedule to yes, be us this morning. Greatly, greatly appreciate that. I really mean that, David. I mean, Abby has such an interesting, and a lot of people don't know this, hugely quantitative gift. You know, you see it in the CFA Journal and all that kind of thing. But she's got a whole skill set that's away from maybe, you know, Chair Yellen and the others. Yeah, great to speak with I'm her. I'm just trying to sell her as a governor. Of course, you know? of course. <laughs> there are some vacancies. But, yeah, I remember speaking with her as she stepped down from that position as the president of the Global Markets Institute, Abby Joseph Cohen, now senior investment portfolio strategist at Goldman Sachs, Cornell alumna. She's a big hockey fan as well, right? Capitals. Bleeds Washington Capitals. She's just, you know... I didn't bring it up because she's so distressed (laughs) about Ovechkin and, you know, this is like their last year to get it done. And I figured she'd never come back on if I brought up the Capitals. We get into the forecast a little bit here as we get those headlines as well. The BOE seeing inflation at 2.4% in 2018, 2.2% in 2019. The bank sees a GDP rising 1.6% next year, 1.7% in 2019, then 2020. Yeah. And uh, on, the, on, on inflation, on the labor market, uh, the bank is cutting its unemployment forecast, saying slack in the labor market in the U.K. is limited, uh, in the bank's words. Yeah, there's that slack word. We associate that, of course, with chair. Um, Yellen, one of the things I would suggest here, uh, David, is we all see too much of each other versus our families. I mean, I see more of Biscuit than I do of, of John, Tucker. <laughs> John Tucker. How is Biscuit? Oh, she's great. I uh, left her this morning. Um, yeah. Some uh, little biscuit treats. British biscuits oh, for Bank of England. Yeah, oh, nothing, nothing but the best. Very good. Well, you know, so we see each other. And I have the clearest memory, David, of Francine Lacroix stopping me dead in my tracks with the observation of negative wage growth mm-hmm. in the United Kingdom. I know of no history I've ever read. Bernanke, Timberlake, Anna Schwartz, Meltzer, all of them. How do you raise rates into negative wage growth? Politically, I, I find that uh, uh, unique or untested, to say the least. Yeah, we're going to get into this with our guest, Tom. But, I mean, a, a very basic but important question here is why the Bank of England did this uh, now. And, and uh, let's, let's dig into that a little bit here with David Blanchflower, of course, a professor of economics uh, at Dartmouth College up in Hanover, New Hampshire, and of course, with some experience advising the Bank of England in the past uh, as well. Danny Blanchflower, great to have you with us here. And let me start oh, with that question. I, I, I know that you were skeptical of or not. Uh, uh, you, you didn't think that the Bank of England should raise rates today. Let, let's just first of all look at the question itself. What's the rationale that they're giving for doing it? Why would the Bank of England do this today? Um, well, the answer is that they guess. And it's only a guess. There's no data. There's no equation. There's no model. They guess that um, the output potential of the economy has fallen because it's going to generate lots of wage growth. But as they've been saying, there's lots of wage growth coming in the last 16 forecasts, and there hasn't actually been any. Um, Real wages are falling. Retail sales are falling. Growth is um, basically awful, uh, anemic, um, and every forecast is it's going to get worse. So basically, they've done it on, I think, on the fact that they think that inflation's quite high, but um, inflation's set to fall. So I would actually trust the decision of the two dissenters, Ramsden and Cunliffe, 
who actually have been attending MPC meetings since at least 2006. They were the Treasury representatives. They used to come to all the MPC meetings that I used to go to in 2006 to nine, And they, I think, are the most experienced data watchers. And they voted against. So I think this is a hugely mistaken decision. On Bloomberg TV five minutes ago, they asked me... Um, What's the prospect in the next 12 months that that decision will be reversed? Will it be? And I said, yes. I mean, this harkens back, David, and you're expert at the history of this. And I, I do want to point out, I don't know if you're aware of this, Professor Blanche Flower, but Michael Pond at Barclays agrees with you. I thought coming right. from a major London house, he was right. stunning today on the risk right. of a policy misdecision here. The Japanese did this under certain different circumstances yep. a decade or two ago. Review right. with us the ramifications when Japan, when the Bank of Japan had to reverse. That had profound residents with Japan and, frankly, worldwide. Well, I, I agree with that, Tom. It did. And look at the anemic growth. But there's more recent examples of that. I think the best example, actually, is the 2011 rate rises by the ECB. They did it twice. Uh, and the yeah. Swedish Central Bank raised rates, too. And in, in all three cases, Japan, ECB, and Sweden, they end up having to go to negative rates. Um, so I think this looks hugely mistaken. I mean, look at look at what's going on in the uncertainty in the UK economy uh, about Brexit. I mean, yesterday, a government that's a minority government loses its defence minister through some sex scandal. Um, so this is so this is a government that really has no credible sort of fiscal strategy. I mean, what happens if the economy slows? We have confidence that a government could respond to it. We're going to see a, a, a forecast coming soon, and the forecasting organization has basically okay. said that they're going to have to slash forecasts. Okay, you're at Dartmouth. I mean, you're only teaching like uh-huh. two hours a week. I get oh, that. Boy. But you're at <laughs> I'm Dartmouth. On sabbatical this year. <clears throat> oh, sabbatical. you're on sabbatical. Yeah, well, John Tucker. John, you're on sabbatical too, right? <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> yeah. Okay, well, well Professor guy? Blanchflower, you're teaching up at Dartmouth. How do you respond to the wise guy in the room who raises his hand and says he's just trying to raise rates to get ready for the next economic slowdown? I love that argument. So here's the deal. You're trying to get ready for the next economic slowdown, and you raise rates and you cause it. Excellent. Um, that, that doesn't make any sense at all. Um, you, raise, you raise rates, it slows the economy in an already slowing economy. I mean, let's get real. People are hurting. Their real wages are falling. And now you're going to raise the cost of mortgages. Remember, in the U.K., Many more people are on variable rate mortgages as a proportion than they are in the U.S. So this immediately raises people's costs. This raises the cost of borrowing to firms, and it lowers dividends. So the effect of this rate rise in an already slowing economy is to slow the economy more. Oh, okay, great plan. So you're going to you raise rates to avoid a recession that you cause. Oh, excellent. What are you going to be listening for? <laughs> what are you going to be listening for today when we hear from Mark Carney? Again, we're going to be carrying his comments live uh, in part here when they begin about yeah. eight thirty. Well, what simple, do you want to hear from the governor? Well, I want to hear. Explain to us the actual. Show us any data, any data other. Than, I'm not going to buy the made up stuff about the capacity in the economy because there's no data for that. There's no equations. There's no nothing. So I'm not going to. I'm not going to buy guesses. Tell me anything that tells you that the economy is overheating and that this generates a rate rise, and that inflation is not going to plummet like a stone. And I suspect that the press corps will ask those questions, especially from the dissent from the most experienced monetary policymakers who say this is a mistake. So I think he's going to have a bit of a tough time. Yeah, you signaled it. 
And yes, you probably should go along with it because you've signaled it. But <clears throat> this looks like an error, doesn't it, no. Governor? Very quickly here, we're going to come back with you, but you mentioned uh, Sir David Ramsden, you mentioned uh, Sir John Cunliffe uh, as well. As we talk about personnel here in the U.S., help us understand the role that those two gentlemen play on, on this committee, this board uh, in London. Right. So, so they, in the, the difference between the MPC and the FOMC is that every meeting, a representative of the Treasury gets to sit into that meeting, um, doesn't get to vote, but oftentimes we would have a conversation with them. Um, so they have experience sitting in those meetings, and there would have been a Treasury representative at this meeting. And now in the last, um, it, recently David Ramsden, so Dave Ramsden got appointed as a deputy governor, and John Cunliffe too. They were both representatives of the Treasury, um, mm. so there's a kind of obvious connection yeah. here. But I would just refer to them as the most experienced yeah people on that committee. They've been going there for a decade. And I've just seen what they said, and it's consistent with what I said. These members felt that there was insufficient evidence so far that domestic costs, in particular wage growth, right. would pick up in line okay. with inflation report central <clears throat> projection. Unfortunately, we're going to have to come back. We're going to come back with Professor Blanchflower. There's lots to talk about here with Denny Blanchflower, of course, of Hanover and Dartmouth College. Uh, with us right now, David Blanchflower. And one of the things you don't know, folks, is that in the depths of the ugliness of the British economy in 2007-8. Blanche Flower had a wedding for one of his daughters in England, which single-handedly moved the needle on United Kingdom <laughs> GDP. You're it, spreading that rumor. I am. It's just, you know, I, I believe Gordon Brown or somebody, thank you, on behalf of the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Absolutely. thank you so much. David, you speak for a Wales, and you speak as well for an England and a Scotland and a Wales outside of what David and I know in three zip codes, in uh, postal mm. codes, whatever, in London. How's the rest of the United Kingdom doing? Well, they're not doing very well at all. I mean, I think if you look back, the Brexit vote is instructive. Um, the places that, if you like, had industrial decline, the old coal towns, the old seaside towns, the ones, in a sense, that have been left behind, voted for Brexit from lack of hope. Of interest is that the MPC, in fact, consists entirely of people who live in London and the southeast. No representation from Scotland, Ireland, or Wales. And I think the reality of a booming London, a booming southeast, booming housing markets is very different from what happens in South End, Hartlepool, Huddersfield, Leeds. Um, and that's one of the great divides. And in some sense, the problem is that you rely on monetary policy. And one size does not fit all. The rates are too high um, in, for the north and too low for the south. So I think the reality is, I think you certainly might argue that members of the FOMC and members of the MPC don't really get to see and understand what's happening in the heartland. Um, and I think that's a, that's a really big reality. Um, and it certainly doesn't seem that the economy in the north or Wales or elsewhere are booming and, and are going to um, warrant... Um, a rate rise. So I think we're, we're seeing these two worlds, the worlds of the left behinds who stood up and said enough is enough, and the world of the elites who, who seem to think that the world is based upon what happens in their three zip codes. Danny, let me, we're having some fun with definitions today. We had Russ Kustrich on the show, and I asked him what right. uh, what quality means. We had uh, <laughs> we had Michael Pont on. We <laughs> asked him what transitory means. Let me ask you about gradual. Is is there a uniform definition of gradual when we hear it from central bankers, be they uh, at the Bank of England or the, the Federal Reserve? What does gradual mean in the context of rate yeah, increases? Yeah, I, I think that's a really great question. The answer is they don't know. 
I mean, the reality is there is no solid economics to tell you the path out of, um, of, of, of monetary policy at the zero lower bound. I mean, think in the UK case. I mean, we have absolutely no idea what Brexit will look like. Over the last two days, um, the UK Parliament has actually been arguing about whether the government would release 50-odd studies that it had done about the impact of um, Brexit on industry. And so the Parliament voted to do it. The government didn't want to release it. And the Speaker of the House said, if the government doesn't do it, the, the, the government will be held in contempt of Parliament. So it's hard to know what um, impacts of Brexit will be. It, it's basically saying we're not going to raise rates anytime soon. We know that it needs stimulus, but there's a huge amount of uncertainty. And Jay Powell in the U.S. is in that position, too. There is no economics to tell you how to withdraw stimulus, and the risks are all to the downside. That's what it means. With the last it means min- not steep. There you go. With, with two minutes left, let me ask you about uh, Jay Powell and the Fed that he presumably will inherit uh, and the tools that are left in, in his toolkit. How depleted are those uh, reserves? When you, when you look at uh, what policies and what, what tools he has at his disposal, uh, are there many fewer than there were for his predecessor? Well, absolutely. I mean, the reality is that we've had rates held so low because fiscal policy has been overly tight. If you look back to 2008, I mean, I look back at the decision I dissented on in July 2007, which raised rates to five and three quarters percent. So when the shock came along, you could cut from five and three quarters essentially to zero. Well, now with rates at one or in the UK case, a half, um, it's pretty difficult to really do very much. So that's the problem. The toolkit is relatively limited and you're sitting with these huge amounts of assets on your balance sheet and a recession is due. Just in 30 seconds, Professor, does the U.S. risk a British risk with one rate increase December 13th? Well, I think it's uh, at the moment we should wait and see what's going. I think, I mean, we'll see whether there's another rate increase. But my suspicion is that, I mean, the U.K. economy looks much worse than the U.S. one. The U.S. appears to have been able to withstand these rate rises. But I think the U.K. is much weaker. Growth is much weaker than in the U.S. We've seen 3% in the U.S. Right. In 1% in the UK. Okay. This has been fabulous, David Blanchard. Honored to have you with us, of course, with his service to the Federal Reserve System and uh, more importantly to Bank of England uh, as well. He is a runner professor of economics at uh, Dartmouth College. Right now, John Bitcoin, oh, I mean, John Bilton joins us from J.P. Morgan. It says, I'm sorry, David, my eyes were having trouble. It says, don't ask him about Mr. Diamond or Bitcoin as well. That's from his public relations people. John Bilton joins us from J.P. Morgan Asset Management uh, in London. It's always a joy to have you here. Thank you. As a chemistry major, we have, it warms the heart. To go, like, what is the product of water and pentyl ethanoate under acidic conditions? How did chemistry prepare you for finance, investment, and economics? Well, you know, it's um, it's a quantitative subject. It's one that requires a lot of detailed analysis. But frankly, it's one which I left behind when I was 22. <laughs> you got that view, right. <laughs> yeah, <the> same <laughs> which, uh, which with, with a view to moving into the financial markets. And you know what? I don't really remember much of that undergraduate but, degree but, beyond being taught how to use statistics and analysis exactly. in a meaningful and way. And the rigor stayed with you. I was in the exactly. same boat with microbiology and biology. The, the answer, David Gura, before you pick this up is A, 
ethanoic acid and pentanol, okay. B, butanol and water, C, ethanoic acid, comma, two equivalents, or pentanol, comma, two equivalents. David, you got an answer for that? I'll wait for the, uh, the quiz results to come in. Uh, John told, let me I, I'm, I'm trying to get Wikipedia up. There at the moment as well, exactly. so, you know. Sluggish this morning. <laughs> let me ask you, John, about uh, what we heard yesterday from the Federal Reserve. Of course, this normalization process getting underway. We have it well telegraphed from the Fed what that's going to, to look like. From a market's perspective, how are you preparing uh, for that? In other words, it's been telegraphed well. What is it going to mean? What's the effect going to be on the markets? In terms of the Federal Reserve. Yes. So um, one of the things that I think you've got to take a step back on is recognise this is a long journey. Yeah. You know, the Federal Reserve want to normalise rates, not because they've got some level that they have in mind that's appropriate. Of course, they have models for that. But they want to remove what has been emergency stimulus that has been there to bring the economy out of a period of very sluggish growth and disinflationary risk. Now, of course, the world is now growing in a synchronous fashion. Trade data is picking up. Employment data is uh, demonstrating a labour market which is pretty close to its uh, sort of natural uh, full level in, in many places, the US, the UK, Japan, etc. And so I think normalising policy does two things. Number one, it puts a focus back on that goal of price stability. Mm -hmm. And number two, more importantly, it avoids the risk of asset bubbles. And I think that that's where we are seeing the Fed home in on. They want stability. They want this um, period of economic growth, not only in the US, but around the globe, to continue at a modest and controllable pace. That's their end game. That's their goal. Do you see any indications of bubbles uh, at this point when you look out at uh, cross assets? Are, are there any signs that give you pause or give you concern at this point? Um, when we look at the environment today, I mean, we have to recognise we're late in the ec economic cycle. Uh, this has been a long expansion. Um, the US, we see a long-term uh, trend growth rate from our long-term capital market assumptions around one and three-quarter uh, percent. We're clearly clubbing a little above that at the moment. That's completely reasonable. But I think what we've got to ultimately recognise is that it's unlikely the US economy surprises yeah. in terms of its level of growth, but mm. it can certainly surprise in its duration of growth. And so to our mind yeah. at the moment... Asset markets are pricing for a long and steady expansion, helped along by the Federal Reserve. John Bilton, so much of this is the sausage-making of intellectual output. Bruce Kasman and Michael Faroli do economics, and you've got to come over and synthesize it and apply it to large money, institutional wealth management money and all the rest of it. How do you synthesize 1.4% U.S. potential GDP? Politically, you can't do it. Actuarially, you can't do it. I mean, that's a number none of us can get our hands around, isn't it? Well, I think you've got to start with your building blocks and you've got to recognise where the risks are. We end up in our, and, and bear in mind this is from our long-term capital market assumptions, so this is looking out 10 to 15 sure. years, one and three quarter percentage points. And we synthesise that from a labour component. The US actually has a reasonable labour force growth compared to other developed markets, and that gives it a better outcome than the rest of the developed markets, which grow on average around one and a half percent in our uh, models over the next 10 to 15 years. But there's also a upside risk that can come from productivity, but it's a risk. We've seen better data coming out recently, but mm -hmm. of course there's both a structural okay. and cyclical element to productivity. <clears throat> so on our base case, one and three quarter percent actually gets you a reasonable run rate of growth, but there are upside risks as well as downside risks. Then what is your JP Morgan asset management actuarial assumption of nominal top line in inflation-adjusted return for some adult wanting to figure out retirement or institutional placement of money. 
numbers are coming down. Single digit numbers are coming down. Where are they? I want to pin you down. Okay, absolutely. Please do. So we estimate in nominal terms that a 60-40 global equity and aggregate bond portfolio, so very classic balanced portfolio, is going to give you around five and a quarter percent. Let's put that in context, though. Let's put it in context. (laughs) The last 50 years, on average, it's been 7.9%. Since the financial crisis, it's been 11.2%. The fact of the matter is, if we look forward, there is a, a relatively late cycle market, full valuations, reasonably wide margins. There is a cyclical drag on long-term returns hey, because of where we are today. What you just heard there, folks, in the last 25 seconds from Mr. Bilton is the single most important thing in October, November, and December that you're going to hear on anything I have to do. Let's review that again. It's so important. Mm. We had a almost 8% run rate of return. That's right. We had the blowout bubble or whatever of what we've all lived, which is, what's the number again? 11%? 11. 11.2%. 11.2-ish percent. And because we're going to regress off the cyclical structure, we're going to a 5 to 6% top-line return on a blended 60-40 portfolio. Yeah. But before we get too doer about this, let's look at the facts. Let's break it down. One of the things that I think is a positive out of the numbers today is that we're seeing upside risks from productivity, technology, etc. Agreed. For the first time since the financial crisis, really right. beginning to see the slowing okay. of that decline. But more importantly, the equilibrium level of returns, we reckon on US equities, is around about 7.5%. So the expense of them and the margin contribution today is taking around 200 basis points on average out of the returns that you'll get average each year over the next 10 to 15 years. So if you're prepared to be a little bit more active, to find different sources of risk premia, to think about diversification, there are means of making back that gap. So this is not a Mm -hmm. message that, you know what, five and a quarter percent, you've got to live with it, move on. This is a message that, you know what, you can do it. You've got to work a bit harder. You've got to be a bit more inventive and active. But there are gains to be had. David didn't work. I'm depressed. (laughs) (laughs) Let me ask you lastly here. Get your perspective being based in London and traveling Mm. a lot. Of how much uncertainty there is surrounding Brexit, of course, we follow the news stories, Mm. but in terms of the the uncertainty and how that affects your positioning, is it getting worse? Is it getting at all clearer? Give your your sense, your perspective on the uncertainty of Brexit and the effect it's having on markets right now. Look, it's uncertainty. Markets don't like uncertainty. And we've got a, uh, you know, this was sort of brought up in in, in Mark Carney's discussion this morning. Mm. You know, he he didn't talk that much, in fact, about about the pound. You know, he talks a bit about inflation, a bit about the pass-through and the trade uncertainty from Brexit, the fact that it's having an effect on business confidence, business investment. And until we have a clearer picture, that's likely to persist. Now, you know, whichever side of the fence one comes down on, mm. the fact of the matter is that this is a negotiation between a block of 27 sovereign nations and one mm. sovereign nation on the other oh. side. And that is, you know, it's a very difficult thing to do. The UK has been in the European Union for 43 years, unpicking and remaking those ties is a difficult process, even if we're dispassionate about the economics. And I don't think that that uncertainty will go away yeah. anytime too but soon. I don't want to get you in trouble with Mr. Diamond, but do you have Bitcoin in your portfolios? I no. do not. No, okay. I do not. Very good. <laughs> Morning, Mr. Diamond. Thank uh, you for listening. John Bilton with his JP Morgan Asset Management, head of Bitcoin strategy. I'm kidding. No, multi-asset strategy as well. And of course, the uproar over Mr. Diamond's comments on Bitcoin. I get a lot of mail on it, David. You're going to get follow- more, I feel- <laughs> follow on mail. You know, there's some, some real, you know, you know, they're not giving the love to Mr. Diamond over at the Bitcoin troops. 
uh, take issue as Bitcoin continues to do a moonshot. digress on an exceptional news flow day and no doubt to t- touch upon our present history making in the United States with someone that I've interviewed over the years who defines history. Uh, he is the historian in America that the other historians read. He studied under Mr. Balin at Harvard a few years ago. His work on Benjamin Franklin is truly definitive in his, David, his, his adjustment of our attitudes about the American Revolution has been absolutely profound. I believe he is a professor emeritus, David Gura, at Brown University. <laughs> he is indeed, and I won't tick through all the prizes he's won, but I will say they include the Pulitzer Prize and the Bancroft Prize uh, as well. Gordon Wood joins us now. He's the Alpha Way University professor and professor of history emeritus at Brown uh, University, author of the new book, Friends Divided, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, and a pleasure to speak with him here uh, on this uh, Thursday morning. Uh, professor Wood, let me start by asking you about uh, John Adams. You focus on these two presidents in particular. We know an awful lot, as you point out in the book, about Thomas Jefferson. He's the subject of a lot of conversation, a lot of uh, interest here uh, nationally in the year 2017. Why is it that we care so less, at least when you look at quantity of books written about uh, John Adams? Why, why do we care so much less about him than Mr. Jefferson? Well, he, uh, he was much too much a realist, and he said things that uh, we just find uh, unacceptable. He didn't believe all men are created equal. For example, he didn't believe that America was exceptional. We were just as sinful, just as uh, corrupt as other nations. So he takes on our, our, our myths, our, our dreams of what we ought to be, uh, or what we think we are. And uh, for that reason, he, he can't really be in that, uh, in that same league as, as Jefferson. You look at these two uh, in binary. How did they get to know each other? How different were they when they were uh, first united here working on this project of America? Well, they met in the Continental Congress, in the Second Continental Congress. Uh, Jefferson missed the first one. Uh, and they were both radicals. That is, they both were eager for independence. And so that brought them together, and they collaborated uh, nicely, uh, with, with Adams doing most of the speaking, and, and Jefferson, uh, he was good in, in small groups, but he was not an orator. But they, they bonded over, that, over, the, uh, over the revolution. That, that certainly made, uh, made, made them, uh, gave them a common cause. How different was the, the, the background of experience? Uh, Mr. Adams coming from Braintree in Massachusetts, Thomas Jefferson coming, of course, from uh, the Commonwealth of, uh, of Virginia. When they right. met at that Continental Congress, how much did they have in common? How common was the experience? Well, they, they, had? Had, they had very little in common except for that, uh, that, that uh, belief in, in independence. They were, came from very different backgrounds. Uh, Jefferson was a rich, uh, slaveholding aristocrat who took his uh, status for granted. Uh, Adams, by contrast, came from a middling background, and uh, his position was due almost solely to merit. He really worked hard and as an attorney. Uh, Jefferson really inherited uh, wealth from his father, and then more slaves mm-hmm. and more land from his father-in-law. So they came from very different backgrounds. Uh, if you're just uh, joining us, Gordon Wood with us, the historian of Brown, which for those in the racket means no other introduction is necessary. <laughs> The other day, Ron Chernow darkened the door with his effort on Grant. And, of course, many would say that Mr. Chernow changed American history with his Alexander Hamilton. He says, whenever I read Wood, the dean of 18th century American historians, I feel I am, absor- I love this, absorbing wisdom at the feet of the master. <laughs> what did you think, Professor Wood, 
in the John Adams TV treatment when the, set, when the 18th century slammed into me, and that was the smallpox vaccination. I think Laura Linney was involved. I can't remember. <laughs> but it's the Adams, and they're way out front with smallpox vaccination. And it just hit me over the head the 18th century. We delude ourselves to thinking we're like them, don't we? Right. We're not. Exactly. I, I think uh, we have to take uh, L.B. Hartley's, uh, he was a, nov- a British novelist, who said uh, in uh, the opening of his book, uh, uh, said, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. That should be the maxim of every uh, historian or every student of history, because you have to start with the presumption that they're not just like us. Otherwise, you end up getting very confused about their behavior. How much have you detected a change in appetite for uh, history. Tom brings up Hamilton, of course, and we've seen the excitement surrounding the, the Broadway musical and, and, and all of that. When you talk to students uh, in Providence today, when you when you travel the country, when you're selling books like uh, like the one that we mentioned here, Friends Divided, uh, is there a greater appetite for learning about American history uh, in well, the year 2017? Well, I think it, it, there's an age difference. There's certainly people, say, over 50 seem much more interested in history, including people who retired, who who were attorneys or physicians, and they suddenly find uh, an interest in history that they didn't have or didn't have time for earlier. Uh, I'm not sure that young people are as much interested in history as uh, they used to be, uh, but maybe that's just a, fi- a fact of, of, uh, of youth. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the past isn't very interesting to young people, but it certainly does become interesting for people after, say, mm-hmm. after 50. Mm-hmm. Sir, that's because you're retired Brown. <laughs> it's your fault. There is at Mount Vernon, Professor Wood, a, 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 a sculpture, a bust of George Washington, the Houdin, that I find absolutely remarkable. It's like he's just staring at you, and everybody says it's the only thing that really looks like George Washington. What did President Washington think of his friends divided? Well, I think he, uh, he, he admired Jefferson up to the point where Jefferson was his Secretary of State, and he found him... Uh, disingenuous and not as uh, forthright as he would have thought. Uh, and there is a break between Jefferson and, and Washington. Washington's attitude towards Adams, I think, was a little bit quizzical. He couldn't quite figure him out. Adams was his vice president, but he never really was close to him. He didn't uh, consult him. He didn't get involved with him. He must have regarded Adams as a little bit of an odd, odd duck. I would suggest, David Gurr, that we need to drag Gordon Wood back for another we'll segment do it. We'll do it. Yes. to possibly speak on his next book, A Nation Divided, uh, talking about the United States of America at this time. Gordon Wood with us at Brown University. I can't say enough about the extent of the scholarship. Ron Chernow, Joseph Ellis, um, uh, John Meacham and Colin Woodward uh, do justice on the back of Friends Divided. But all you need to know is absolutely definitive on our myths and our misperceptions of another time. We continue with Gordon Wood. Uh, as I've said before, the historian's historian, uh, just expert on our restructuring in our minds of the colonies and the period of the revolution. We celebrate friends divided, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, which with anyone with an affection for our founding fathers goes to the top of the page. Um, you wonderfully have Professor Wood in here a beautiful moment on Thomas Paine. And I bring it to our modern politics as we look at the age of reason of 2017. As Adam said, 
pain, such a mongrel between pig and puppy. That's nice language. And then you talk about Adam saying the pol- I love this. The David, this is a word you used about me yesterday. Mm. The poltroonery yes. of mankind. It, it, what does Gordon Wood? <laughs> yes. What does Gordon Wood think of the poltroonery of 2017? Well, I think that uh, Adams would certainly say um, I expected it. This is what he, you know, he <clears throat> thought that our elections would become so partisan, so corrupt that we would have to eventually have a hereditary president and a hereditary Senate. We have to go the English route because we certainly couldn't uh, continue along this line. So he would, he would be, uh, he, he would not be surprised by what has happened to our politics. He, he would have said, "I told you so." But, you know, one thing that these two guys had in common was their hatred of Alexander Hamilton, uh, which is, uh, I think, probably more of a bonding uh, that they had than than their support for the revolution. They really, both of them, hated Hamilton, uh, and that uh, that gave them something in in common. Take us to the uh, the presidential election of 1800, uh, what that means for for their friendships, and how was it uh, that when Benjamin Rush was able to bring these two back together after after, uh, Jefferson defeated Adams? Well, that was one of the most scurrilous elections in American history, certainly much worse than anything we've experienced in recent times. And they were uh, they themselves did not campaign uh, in those days. They, they simply stayed at, at their homes in Monticello and then Quincy. And, and their followers, however, uh, attacked uh, each, uh, each of the candidates with a viciousness that we, we would find uh, appalling even, uh-huh. even today. Uh, and, and Adams was humiliated by the defeat. He just expected to be the continued to be elected the way Washington had to two terms, and so he refused to attend um, Jefferson's inauguration. He's the only president who uh, did that. That is, uh, he left on an early four o'clock, four a.m. stage, so he could miss uh, Jefferson's inauguration. He's the only president, as far as I know, who's ever. Uh, done that and not attended the uh, the inauguration of his successor. Now it was very difficult for 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 them to get back together, but Rush worked at it, and Adams's passions had subsided. By we're talking twelve years later, mm-hmm. eighteen twelve, uh, and and uh, Rush worked at it for months to bring the two men back together, and uh, they finally they're the. The, the remembrance, the memories they had of of their closeness in 1776, and then again in the 1780s as ministers abroad, that they they recollected that, and they were old men, both retired, and and they and they came back together, and and then over the next 14 years they exchanged exchanged 158 letters, with Adams writing three times as many as as Jefferson. Do you have wisdom? On impeachment, we had a wonderful conversation with Cass Sunstein, who, folks, has out a wonderful small book on the impeachment, not of what we think of in the modern day, but the historical path from the time of Gordon Wood. How did they do impeachment within the the reach and study of your work, Professor Wood? Well, actually, uh, Adams, uh, in 1774, uh, the people in Massachusetts were very upset with the judges and with the coercive acts that had been passed by Parliament, and and uh, so he he's the one who, who investigates impeachment, comes up with the idea of impeaching these judges, and no one in the colony had heard of the idea of impeachment. It was something that was buried in the English past, uh, and uh, they they implement that impeachment 
1774, and it gets written, into, as you know, into the Constitution. Uh, it's a political, quasi-political, uh, essentially political means of removing a high officer. And uh, as you know, uh, two, two presidents have been impeached, that is accused, but no president has been convicted. It's very difficult. You need two-thirds of the Senate, and that's not easy to get. Reading your book, I, I look for indications that we could have the kind of comedy or friendship among political rivals that we had back then. Is it your sense that that is, if not impossible, more difficult today as we approach the 250th anniversary of the founding of this country, that perhaps what united Adams and Jefferson was the fact that this was a nascent nation at that point, that they were invested in what America was going to be? Is it harder to have that kind of bipartisan friendship here in the year 2017? It seems right now we're living through it, uh, a very extreme partisan uh, Period, and uh, it's difficult because of the electoral system. Uh, first past the post. We we really need more than two parties, but we can't really because we're such a big, diverse country. Mm-hmm. Two parties can't really uh, embody all of the different interests. It would be much better if we had a multi-party system where we could have co- coalitions, uh, as the Europeans do, and and you work out compromises that way. It's very very difficult for us to all come right. together. You finish your book where James McGregor Burns uh, did so well in Vineyard of Liberty, where they're passing on a July 4th. Explain the atmosphere on that summer day, and I believe it was 1824, 1826, on a July 4th when Adams and Jefferson uh, died. What was that almost mythology of that single historic day for America? Well, both of them, of course, were very ill and knew they were dying, and and of course there was a certain amount of managing. Uh, Jefferson has asked his doctor, is it the 4th yet? And the doctor says, no, it's still July 3rd. And so Jefferson hangs on because he, he knows the significance of this. This was the Jubilee, the 50th, the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. So, uh, and, and, and of course, they didn't know the other was, what the health of the other was. Adams, when he He's near death. He, one of his last words, presumably, we, we've been told this, mm-hmm. uh, that he says, well, Jefferson still survives. Well, actually, yeah. Jefferson had died five hours earlier. But, but Adams, in some larger sense, in a figurative sense, of course, Jefferson did survive right. in a way that Adams uh, has well, not. Jefferson is celebrated in a way that Adams has never been celebrated. Professor, thank you so much. We hope your next book is on 2017 (laughs) in modern uh, politics. Gordon Wood of Brown University. The new book is Friends Divided. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.